Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Everybody survived Christmas? Did you get everything you bought? <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's a great time of year um, to remember the Lord and what He's done. But we get to this time of year and we start to kind of look to the next year, right? We start to turn our eyes toward 2019. Um, have you made any New Year's resolutions? No? Lots of people make resolutions with the idea of having some aspect of their life be better. Um, I know I have um, made resolutions in the past, usually around my health. You know, like uh, I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to exercise more or at all. Uh, um, unfortunately, the statistics for keeping resolutions is pretty dismal. Um, it seems that only 8% of the people who um, start a New Year's resolution actually achieve their resolutions at the end of the year. Um, I saw one thing this week in the news that said, by January 12th, most people have given up. <laughs> but the gym memberships are through the roof, so that's, that's good. Um, and you can tell from looking at me, my track record is not much better than that or at all. Uh, the problem is, is there's always ways to get off track, you know, to, uh, uh, to get sidetracked from what we know is good. Um, and there are things that we need to learn to prepare and to consider in order to be successful, right, in our lives. Um, one of the best changes that we can make in our lives at any time of the year is the decision to get closer to the Lord. Um, but you can be sure there will be a lot of temptations not to do that effort. Um, and we need help to overcome the temptations, um, both to do something wrong and to stop doing something good. Um, this morning we're going to be studying the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. If you want to turn, turn to that, Matthew chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 1. And I want to encourage you that Jesus experienced the same temptations that we do, and he did not fail. Um, you might say, well, it was easier for him. He's God. Um, and, and while that's true, he is fully God. He, he is also fully man. Um, the temptations he faced were real, and he is fully man, and facing them was no easier for him than it is for us. As a matter of fact, it may be harder because he never gave in. So the temptation kept continuing and getting harder where we might give in and the temptation be alleviated. Um, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, the struggle was so difficult that his sweat became like, like great drops of blood. Um, it was a huge effort to focus on the Lord. Um, so we need to remember that the temptations he faced are real. His example is good, and it's valid for us. He prevailed, and this passage shows us how. So the first thing we need to consider is that we are in a spiritual war. That's the first point here. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, it was war. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers 
against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. When I ever think, whenever I think about war and, and really hard things, I, I think back, I was about 10 years old, which has been a while, and, and had a black and white TV with three channels. But on the news, every night during the Vietnam War, they would scroll names of those who had died. Every night, it would scroll by. And you might go to school and you say, well, where's, you know, where's Ruth Ann? Say, well, she, her brother died, and that's why she's not at school in the war. So we knew it was real, and it was, it was serious. Um, we're in a spiritual war, and it's real. There are angelic hosts that if we could see them, we would be amazed and astounded. And there are also spiritual beings that are so evil that if we could see them, we would recoil in terror. Um, we'd be terrified. And just because you can't see them doesn't mean that they aren't there. You can't see nerve gas, but it'll kill you right quick. It's real. And these forces are stronger than us, and they are more powerful than us. Um, this war is for the everlasting souls of men and women and children. And Satan is so wicked and so evil that even though he's lost the war, he continues to battle to make as many people miserable and drag them with him to hell. 1 Peter 5.8 warns us to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This war is everywhere, and every single person is in it, and we all have this same adversary. Look at this quote from John Piper. There's a war going on in the world between Christ and Satan, truth and falsehood, belief and unbelief. It tells me that there are weapons to be funded and used, but that these weapons are not swords or guns or bombs, but the gospel and prayer and self-sacrificing love. And it tells me that the stakes in this conflict are higher than any other war in history. They are eternal and they are infinite, heaven or hell, eternal joy or eternal torment. Matthew 4, 1 through 11 is about a very significant battle in this war. It describes how Christ was tempted, and in this passage, we learn about the types of temptations that we all face and the example that Christ set for us on how to deal with this temptation. However, we can't look at, at chapter 4 without turning back a little bit and looking at chapter 3. If you turn back just a little at the events that began Jesus' ministry. Jesus had come to, to John the Baptist to be baptized, and it says in Matthew 3, starting in verse 16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he came, went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is a great start to ministry. Um, you've got the whole trinity 
here in this passage at the beginning, at the inauguration of Jesus' ministry on earth. Um, and this is the same thing that begins our walk with the Lord. We're baptized and we come up out of the water. We're declaring that my life is the Lord and I am devoted to his will in me. Matthew 4.1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Gospel of Mark says, The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. This is an important thing to make note of because many times really tough battles follow right behind mountaintop experiences. 1 Corinthians 10.12 warns us, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands Take heed lest he fall. We need to be careful. We need to be alert and remain alert. And a good example of this is in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah saw this awesome victory over 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Fire had come down from heaven and Elijah slaughtered all these false prophets who were trying to lead God's people astray. And immediately after this victory, we read that Elijah was running for the hills and hiding in a cave from just one woman named Jezebel. What's up with that? <laughs> Maybe you can attest to this in your life. You know, right after some mountaintop experience, we can be overwhelmed when trouble comes. Things are going really good and things are going right, and then all of a sudden, pow, right in the back of our head. We need to be alert and aware. Jesus was immediately led by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why? Why immediately and why that? It was because this battle was necessary. Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth to confront and defeat the enemy. He came to win the war. Satan tempted the first Adam and he failed the test. Jesus came as a second Adam to face the same test and to win. And just like Jesus, it's necessary for you to engage in this battle and to win. We, we must not live with a peacetime mentality that everything's good, everything's all right, everything's going okay. We have to live with a wartime mentality because we're in a spiritual war. We have to prepare for it and fight like it. And we have to use Jesus as our example of how to do that. Matthew 4, 2 says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, yeah, I bet so. I have trouble between lunch, you know, and supper. <laughs> it might seem strange, but this fasting for 40 days and 40 nights was battle prep. Jesus was hungry for God. And he was focused on his father in preparation for the battles that were to come. He knew he was going into battle. And it wasn't just this one time either. Over and over through the gospel, Jesus shows us that time alone in prayer, time alone with God, seeking him and getting closer to him is critical in our lives. Jesus had only three years in ministry, but scripture records that he repeatedly took time out and went off alone to pray and spend time with his father. This is 
the biblical example of a life in intimate relationship with God. It's, it's important for us to stay connected to him, to be in battle. Jesus saw, oh, A.W. Tozer said this. Take a look at this at the screen. We have as much God as we actually want. We have as much of him in our life as we choose to have. How much we seek him, how much we want him to be in control of our life, we have exactly that much. Jesus sought God earnestly for 40 days and 40 nights. He he was well prepared for what was coming. How much time and effort do you spend getting more of God in your life? Are you making an effort to be prepared for the tests and trials that you will face? Because we know we'll face them, right? I mean, we know it's a sin-cursed and fallen world, and there's an enemy, and he's coming. Matthew records that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, and Matthew's Hebrew audience would have immediately connected this passage and Jesus in the wilderness with the children of Israel's uh, 40 years in the wilderness. After God's chosen people had passed through the water of the Red Sea, a baptism, right? They came up immediately, and God led them in the desert for 40 years to learn to rely on him. Matthew is pointing out that where Israel failed to trust God in their desert trial, Jesus would not fail. In verse 3, we see and find the first temptation. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. See, Satan was tempting Jesus to provide for himself. And he was saying, If you are the Son of God, but you are hungry, then your Father isn't treating you right. If you are the Son of God, you should make bread from these stones and satisfy yourself apart from God's will. Apart from his plan. And that's our next point, that we are tempted to fulfill our desires apart from God's will. This is self-gratification. See, all of us have good and right desires that God created in us. These are needs for our bodies and their longings in our souls. And God designed and created us as his children who he loves, that we will humbly look to him as our perfect father who will provide for us. This is exactly the situation that was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were in perfect, intimate relationship with the Lord. They looked to him to provide for all their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. And Satan tempted them by suggesting that God wasn't treating them right and was holding out on them. So Adam and Eve decided to fulfill their desire apart from God's will and provision for them. It was at this exact point that sin entered the world. They desired something more than their relationship with God. They stopped trusting and loving God with all their heart, soul, and strength and began to rely on themselves. This is the same situation with God's testing the nation of Israel in the wilderness. In this passage, Jesus faces this same temptation, but he does not fail. So how does he do that? Jesus quotes scripture. 
He quotes from Deuteronomy 8. And I didn't want to just use this. I wanted to give you some context. So I want to put all of this, this passage up on the screen. And I've underlined the part that Jesus uh, told the, the enemy. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led, led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart. Did God not know what was in their heart? He knew what was in their heart. He was testing them to show them what was in their heart. That's a really good thing that God shows us who we are. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did, their fa- did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God used these difficulties to show them their lack of faith in him to provide for them. This is precisely the same testing that's in our lives. We have good, God-given desires for food and water and sleep, sex, relationships, companionship, and so on. These are good things. And it is, but it is in these God-given good things, these good desires, that Satan twists to tempt us. We desire food, Satan tempts us to overeat. We desire sleep, he tempts us to laziness. We desire, we have a desire for sex, but instead of God's given design for marriage, Satan tempts us with sins like lust, pornography, adultery, and homosexuality. There are good desires that Satan twists to turn us away from the Lord. From his good plan, his good design. At the very center of this is the sin of self-gratification that says, God is not providing for me in the way and timing that I want. God is holding out on me so that I will now get it for myself right now and without him. Satan tempts us to satisfy ourselves apart from God's plan for us. This was the original temptation with Adam and Eve and the children of Israel, and they failed. And Satan is still using the same old thing on us. Works so good. But Jesus is our example, and you should not live by bread. You should not live by the things of this world alone. There's, there's more and these things that are more are eternal. They're everlasting. They have, more gr- they have more weight. When you have needs and they aren't being met in the way that you want, you must remember Jesus' example and to continue to trust in your perfect Heavenly Father. He has a perfect plan for you, and these desires and trials do not define you. It is God's work in us through Christ that defines us. It's his work that that defines who we are. We're God's children. This is a war. And just because you're a child of God does not mean that things won't be hard. And we need to press in and trust him more. It doesn't mean that you may never want something or someone that isn't in God's will for you. 
and you have to press in and trust him more. See, we have a choice at that point. We can turn and press into him, or we can turn the other way. That's the choice when we have this temptation, when we have this wrong thing that's in front of us. And we need him. So how do you hold out? How do you win on this temptation to satisfy yourself? We win by an ever-growing and deeper relationship with the Lord. That's the pressing in. When Jesus was hungry, he fully trusted in the love and perfect provision of God the Father. He had an intimate relationship with the Father, and he completely trusted in his plan. See, we can't tell God how to fulfill the desire that he created in us. We must continually trust him to fulfill them his way. His plan is perfect, with perfect timing, and our attempts to get what we want apart from him not only doesn't help, but it damages us. Just like Adam and Eve, as soon as they took a bite of that fruit, they realized that they had broken their relationship with God and everything turned to the worst. They knew it immediately. Nobody had to tell them. They knew, oh, something's changed. Something's broken as soon as they did that. What they thought would bring satisfaction brought nothing but misery, pain, and loss. Jesus' example to us is to seek God in these difficulties, intentionally drawing closer to him and trusting him more. This is the test that the Israelites failed, but this is the test that Jesus got right. Now we move from this first temptation of self-gratification to the second temptation of self-protection. This temptation is a little harder for us to get our heads around because we have trouble understanding how jumping off a high building is tempting. (laughs) In verse 5 it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, He will command the angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. The first thing we have to notice here is where Satan took him. He took him way up on the temple where all the important religious people could see him. Satan was saying, jump off and the angels will come and catch you and keep you safe. And everyone will see you and they will know who you are. This is very obviously appealing to pride. Second, Satan quotes from Psalm 91, which is is an incredibly inspiring psalm of God's promise and protection for faithful believers. And I have that in your in your reading guide for the week. In this psalm, God promises to protect them as they go in the way that the Lord leads them. As they go in the way the Lord leads them. Throwing yourself off a building is not God's will for anybody. It's not hard to figure that out, okay? Satan is twisting the promise outside of the context of God's will. God promises if if you follow where he leads you, he will protect you from harm. This promise does not apply to something outside of God's will like jumping off a building. In verse 7, Jesus replies by quoting Deuteronomy 6. 
16. And I have in your reading guide this whole chapter in Deuteronomy. And there's, there's so many points in there, but I don't have time. So there's a few of them in your guide. Read that. It's awesome. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Messiah. The context of this reference to Massah is very important. Exodus 17 is the account of Israel in the desert. And they were complaining to Moses that there was no water. And they were questioning if God was even with them in their hardship. The people of Israel were quarreling with Moses. And they were testing the Lord by questioning, is God among us or not? He promised to be with them. That was a covenant. Yeah, he's with them. He was using the trials to show them their heart, right? They were saying, if God is with us, then he will give us water right now. They revealed their lack of faith and their trust in his protection, presence, and promises by testing God. And that's our next point. We are tempted to question God's promises and to manipulate God's presence and to manipulate God's promises. See, Satan tempted Jesus to twist God's promise in Psalm 91 as a test of God to save him. Testing God is not trusting God. That's, that's, that's not trust. Setting a thing up, saying, do this, and then I'll know. That's not trust, is it? That's not love. That's not part of a loving relationship. This is effectively saying, if you are really God, and if you are really here, and really will protect me, like you said, do it right now as I jump off this building. (laughs) That's not faith and trust, that's evil. See, we are tempted to the sin of self-protection by demanding a sign from God to prove that we can trust him. This isn't faith, this is calling God's character into doubt. This is doubting. God, like the Israelites, saying, God, are you with us or not? Show us by doing what we want now. Do you question God when things aren't going well? Do you question if his promises are true when you're in hardship? Jesus was unshakably confident in his Father. He knew there was never a reason to question God's love, his plan, or his timing. See, God is always working for our good and his glory. Ultimately, that good is we're going to be in heaven with him forever. That's as good as it gets. That's that's the good. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry. When I get tempted to stress and I worry usually about my family. I turn to Matthew 6.33, which says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is an incredible promise from God, and it's for me, because he knows I can't keep a priority list, a priority list longer than one thing. Seeking him. God tells me to seek him, and he will take care of all the other needs in my life. Seeking God is not testing God. It's pursuing a loving and trusting and growing relationship with him. See, there's nothing more for him to prove. He died on a cross to save us, and he took our sin. 
He's proved it. The last temptation is the sin of self-exaltation. In verse 8 it says, Again the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. See, Satan took Jesus to a place, either physically or by vision, to see all the kingdoms of the world. And you might ask, well, why would Satan try to tempt Jesus with this, since Jesus will rule and reign over all? However, Jesus knew that God's will to redeem the lost from sin was through a path of pain and suffering and death. Satan was tempting Jesus to come up with his own plan without the cross. He was tempted to gain the reward right then and have it in his own way and exalt himself to that position. Rather than, as it says in Philippians 2, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Satan was tempting Jesus. You're a son. Why be a servant? You're a king. Why be crucified? Bow to me now and it'll all be yours. And that's the next point. The temptation to assert ourselves in our lives and rob God of his worship. This is self-exaltation. It's putting ourselves before him. Instead of humbly submitting and living in obedience to God and his plan for our lives, we proudly make our own way. And the core of this rebellion is our own pride. Our desire to have our life be the way that we want it because we know best. But we read in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He is Lord. We are not. We're on the little throne. Little G God. He is the God on the throne. He is the only one worthy of exaltation. Russell Moore said it best. Jesus refused to exchange the end time exaltation by the Father for the right now exaltation of the snake. He refused to do that. He knew what God's plan was, and it was good and right and perfect. Jesus' reply in verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. David Platt said, Jesus, the beloved son, knew that the supreme duty for everyone and everything is to worship God. Sounds a lot like seek first the kingdom of God. Matthew 23, 12 says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus, our example, to live in humble obedience, to act out of love, and to worship God instead of sinful, sinful submission to Satan. This is the plan in our example, to serve and not be served, to consider others more important than ourselves, 
If the king and creator of the universe came to give himself, how much more should we give ourselves to him and serve those around us? Now, it's a hard road to follow him, to take up our cross, to die to ourselves, to get off that throne. It's hard to follow him. It's, it's hard to lay ourselves down. But see, but we're not alone in this. He is with us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus has battled the enemy and he won. And the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. See, you're in a real war with a real enemy who is stronger and smarter than you are. He's older than you. He's been watching you. He knows you. He knows where your weak spot is. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. If you read those, it's it's pretty cool. It's it's written kind of like to show us what Satan's plans and the demon's plans are to deceive us and to lie to us and to trick us and to lead us through this temptation. It's interesting. See, he's working to destroy you and those you love to drag you and them to hell. That's That's his plan. But in this passage, you can see the victory that is in Christ. He gives you the example of knowing and understanding his word. God's word is the sword of truth. Are you prepared for battle by picking up this spiritual weapon that God provides you to defeat the temptations of the enemy in your life? If you're not daily studying God's word, then you're stepping into battle unarmed and you're leaving the sword on the shelf in the dust to face this enemy barehanded. But God doesn't intend for you to fight this fight alone. Jesus provides the example of an intimate, growing, and loving relationship with God. He is the Lion of Judah. No enemy can stand before him. He is the coming king and every knee will bow. And every time we'll confess that he is Lord. God made you to need him. To trust him and to live for him. Anything we try to satisfy ourselves, money and power, anything, won't satisfy. It's in him alone where victory is found. Throughout this sermon, I've been addressing believers. That Jesus is showing how a faithful believer lives in the world. He said, this is our example. But I want to address those of you who are not trusting in Christ. Please don't be fooled by the enemy. God made you and designed you with a need for him. Nothing in this world will bring lasting peace and satisfaction apart from him. See, the world says if you go out and you get a, new, get a nice house and a good car and a beautiful wife that you're going to be happy. And then when you find that you're not happy, you say, well, I must need a new car and a new house and a new wife. 
It's a lie from hell. Whatever you've tried to put in that place will not bring satisfaction, will not bring completion, it will not bring a life. There's no peace and satisfaction apart from Him. The problem is that we've all sinned, and our sin makes us God's enemy, and it separates us from Him. But God made a way. He sent His Son, Jesus, to earth to live a perfect life without sin, and then He laid down His life to pay the price for your sin and to bring peace between you and the Lord. God made you. He he loves you. He made a way for you to be in relationship with Him by surrendering and turning your life up and over to Him. Faith alone in the person and work of Jesus. It kind of sounds too simple. But I know it's hard to trust. We are taught and conditioned by this sin-cursed world that to succeed and be happy, we must be self-reliant and self-sufficient. Always looking out for yourself. But that's a lie straight from hell. God designed us to be dependent on Him. That's the design for us. And I implore you to take a step of faith toward Him today. Ask Him in faith to reveal Himself to you. He he will. That's (laughs) That's His will for you, that you know Him. Ask Him for that. He's real and he's alive and he will do a mighty work in your life and draw you to himself. So you cannot win this fight on your own. And he doesn't expect you to. Trust him. He loves you. Let's pray.